This is The Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Now, here's Jason Jones. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to The Jason Jones Show. I am your host, Jason Jones, broadcasting from the beautiful hill country of Texas. Today, our guest is Dr. Dan McMillan. He has an organization, Save Democracy in America. He has a unique um, plan that he's unveiling to try to reduce the influence of big money in politics. He is asking for a commission, a bipartisan, impartial commission to investigate if the, gen- if the election was stolen. And he also wrote a book several years ago that I just discovered when I was looking at his biography on the Holocaust. How could this happen? Explaining the Holocaust. And I did a deep dive on this book, read a bunch of reviews, just ordered the book. And so we talked to him about his campaign finance plan. Then at the end, at the end, we talk about what can we learn from the Holocaust? What can we learn uh, from Weimar Germany, the Weimar Republic? What can we learn from all of that? All right, so let's get on with the interview. But before we do... This episode is being brought to you by Epoch Times. Go to iReadEpoch.com. And when you use the code Jason Jones, you get a year subscription to the best newspaper in the world for $77 for the year. In the world. Ever. And I believe this. Email me at Jason at the Great Campaign.org and say, Jason, there was a better newspaper in the 19. 19- 70s in 1842 you tell me because i i don't know if, if there's ever been a better newspaper than epoch times and you can get the subscription for 77 dollars a year with the code jason jones this episode is also being brought to you by mypillow.com go to mypillow.com in the promotional square use the code jones for deep discounts on all of mike's products and as always this episode is being brought to you by the vulnerable People Project, standing in solidarity with the most vulnerable people in the world. Today, do you know, we got a young, uh, some young women out of jail, Ukrainian women who are being held. We were able to get them out of jail today. We also did a movement out of Afghanistan. We're continuing to support SIVs and religious minorities across Afghanistan and Pakistan who have been victimized by this terror regime, by this terror regime in Afghanistan after the botched withdrawal from the Biden administration. We're the last organization there. From the child in the womb to the SIVs in Afghanistan, we're there. Go to thegreatcampaign.org. Become a monthly donor. That's what I'm going to ask you today. Please, if you are listening to this, go to thegreatcampaign.org because we are being overwhelmed with requests for support. And we need all hands on deck. We need all words in the water. Go to thegreatcampaign.org. Become a monthly donor and put that oar in the water. Okay, here we go with Dr. Dan McMillan. Saving Democracy in America on the Jason Jones Show. Dr. Dan McMillan, welcome to the Jason Jones Show. Thank you so much, Jason. Um, Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very glad to be with you. Well, I want to talk to you about your new book coming out and... uh, how Big Money Stole Our Vote, 
and you stepped on the third way, uh, the third rail of politics with this. Was the election stolen? Uh, well, I haven't really stepped on the third rail. <laughs> I well, I stepped on the third rail in the sense, in the sense, a limited sense, that I fault both major parties for failing to set up. You know, right, right. I mean, January twenty twenty one. I think they should have set up an impartial, a commission of impartial, respected experts, trusted experts on the model of the 9-11 commission um, with full investigatory powers, including the ability to jail anyone who refuses to testify when subpoenaed, give them all the resources they needed, and let that commission investigate every single allegation of election fraud or tampering, whether from whatever side of the aisle it comes from, and, and let's settle this question. And I feel that, because look, you know, for me at this point, the most important question isn't even so much where the election was stolen. It's the tens of millions of my fellow Americans fear that it is or are pretty sure that it is. And that's a very dangerous situation. And I feel that job one in American politics right now is to reach out to these voters, to listen to their concerns, to show them some respect to show them that we take their concerns seriously and to do everything we can to address these concerns. And I feel that this commission, I mean, is it a panacea? Is it going to solve everything in our country? No, of course it's not, but at least it can't hurt. And, you know, I think that the failure to do so illustrates a larger point that goes to the reason why I founded a, a nonpartisan organization promoting a particular, a specific approach to getting money out of politics. Uh, my organization is called Save Democracy in America. It, it illustrates what I think is the fundamental lack of respect that politicians of both parties have for the American people, for the voters. And I think it's partly because our politicians for so long now, they've had no time to listen to us because they're spending all their time listening to the deep-pocketed donors who pay for their horrendously expensive election campaigns. I mean, for, for decades now, really, the, 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 the true constituents of every you know, elected official, at least at the national level, unfortunately, is not their voters. It's their donors. And that's who they listen to. That's who they take care of. We're out in the cold, and it's gotten so bad that, well, in other ways, too, I, I feel that 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 the politicians of both parties really kind of kind of see us as children rather than as the thinking adults that we are. And you see that in all kinds of ways that they treat us and talk to us. And I think big money is at the root of this problem and a whole lot of other problems that we have in, in our political system. Well, Dan, I'm going to be candid with you. I, I think the election was stolen. And, I, you know, other elections have been stolen, 18, 1876, 1960. And so we know elections have been stolen in the past. This happens. Yes. It's striking that we're not allowed to ask that question or people thought Trump stole the election in, in uh, 2016 and that Bush stole the election in 2000. And this was, we were allowed to talk about it and debate about it and argue about it. It's awful strange that for this, this past election, if we say it was stolen, uh, there are people suggesting we should be on the terrorist watch list or something. Well, you know, you raise a very important point. I, I, you know, I focus 
narrowly, you know, I have no expertise in this area. I haven't studied the evidence on this question. I, I think I'm an expert on money and politics. I'm sort of a one-trick pony. And also, my effort is completely nonpartisan. So I do not take a stance on any issue, much less on, on an issue that's such a hot potato as whether the election was fair. And I'm not saying that you're wrong. Okay, I didn't say that, and mm -hmm. I'm not going to say that. I wouldn't say that to any American, all right? But given that I haven't investigated it, I don't have a right to say it. But the main thing is I have, my, I have enough on my plate trying to, you know, promoting a way that I think is the best possible path to take all this power that's currently in the hand of donors and give it back to, to we the people, you know, so that we can be in the driver's seat again the way our founding fathers wanted for us. Can you break that so, down? Yeah, break that down for us. What, what's the path? How do we get, you know, this or the main sponsor of this show, in which I'm the founder and president of the Vulnerable People Project, we represent stateless ethnic and religious minorities that are sort of stuck between very powerful competing interests. So take the Yazidi in Iraq. You have Baghdad, Tehran, you have Turkey, the Gulf states, Russia, China, the United States, and then you have this little embattled community they don't have money. They don't have power. They don't have influence. They have no way of really um, having their interests heard in Washington, D.C. And so that's where our organization comes along, and we try to leverage um, our relationships in the entertainment and media and politics on behalf of these vulnerable communities. But at the end of the day, I try yeah. to explain to them, you are stuck, whether it's the Yazidi or the Uyghur um, or the Hazara in Afghanistan, they're stuck between very wealthy, powerful interests that are that are hired the most influential people who work overtime advancing their interests. But the same That's can the go... That's dimension of the problem that, of the money problem that I was unaware of, hadn't even thought of, and it's great that you that you bring it to the fore. Let me, let me just tell you, just maybe just say a few words about okay. uh, the money problem and, and what I'm trying to do. Um, you know, just just a few numbers about the money problem. Uh, at this point in time, I think probably you can't mount a viable, you know, campaign for a seat in the House of Representatives. I don't see how you could do that for less than three million. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. I think the minimum price of entry to the Senate is ten million, and twenty, thirty, forty million is very far from unusual. The price tag for the White House is a billion, and these candidates who desperately need this money because without the money, you don't have a campaign. They don't get this money from you and me. They get it from the tiny minority of Americans who can give it in bulk, you know, deep pocketed special interests and, you know, billionaires and corporations. And, um, and those are the people, those are the only people left who have any juice in Washington. The solution uh, I think the best solution I've been studying this question on and off, mostly on for more than a dozen years, the best one I've come across is that, well, okay, if the only people, if politicians serve their donors, then we can make them serve us by making ourselves the donors, by letting the voters be the donors that really count. And this is what has been called democracy dollars. It was invented by a couple of professors at Yale Law School. Um, and the way it would work is that the federal government would give every registered voter an online campaign cash account, uh, $100 per voter in a residential year, $50 per voter for the cheaper congressional midterms. You can't pull the money out and spend it, but you go online with your pin and you assign it to the party and the candidates of your choice. 
And in this way, if you fund it at that level, which is quite robust, it's a lot of money, uh, it's even more money than was spent in the 2020 federal election, then any competent, serious candidate who's got ideas that are worth anything will be able to raise more than enough money from the voters to have a, an expensive, fully competitive campaign. And that candidate's opponent is not going to have much excuse for taking money hand over fist from, you know, Big Pharma, Big Oil, George Soros, Charles Koch, you name it. Um, before I go further, I do want to emphasize, we are not saying that the big donors who give the money or the politicians who take it are bad and evil people. We don't think that at all. Uh, we think that, the, that most of these people are patriotic Americans, just like you and I and the people who are listening to your podcast. They're doing what they have to do. Because, I mean, think about it. If you're a wealthy Republican and you don't write fat checks to the Republican Party and Republican candidates, you know that wealthy Democrats will and are going to control our government. If you're a wealthy Democrat, you're in the same boat. And if you're a politician, face it, you know, fundraising is just part of the job. If you don't have a stomach, have stomach for high-dollar fundraising, don't go into politics because it comes with the territory. So that's, you know, that's what I'm trying to do. I just really have launched publishing publicly this week. This is my third interview and uh, with anyone and, and a really good one. I'm so thrilled to have this time with you. There's a lot of things that we can talk about. I guess one of the things I'd love to emphasize that kind of bears on, you know, this, this fight, this, this horrible, you know, thought that the election may be, may have been stolen is Dan, that. Can I ask you a question? Okay, though, Dan, okay, going, jump in, Jason. Yeah, can sure. I, I want to ask you a question going back. So if sure. we did this, well, what were you call them? Democracy dollars. That's right. That's right. So every a registered voter, everyone, do you have to be a registered voter, eighteen and older? How would that work? Well, you you would have to. I think you'd have to. We would have to to prevent you know fraudulent voting because you know an awful lot of Americans fear that there's that that people who are not allowed to, you know who don't deserve don't are not entitled to vote have been voting. So we would need you know we would need I think a national voter registration system. And probably, I think Joe Manchin actually suggested this, although I don't know if it's for this reason. I think it might be a good idea to have a national ID card. Uh, they have them in Germany. I, you know, I've lived a couple of years in Germany and I studied history. So, um, and then the German national ID card, obviously, you have to you have to provide multiple proofs of your identity, as you do for a passport. But the German national ID card. Uh, has something like nine different security features, including a holographic image of of the person who holds the the ID. Uh, that it, you you cannot forge it. And so I think what we need to do, any, anything we do with elections going forward, has got to have serious, you know, redundant features to prevent even the appearance, even the fear of fraudulent voting, of tampering, of anything else. I mean that's that's got to be a very high priority. And so the democracy dollar system is going to have to include safeguards of that kind. I, I haven't worked out those details of implementation, but that's clearly. But, okay, so now oh, I have know, a second question. Your... I have a second question. So sure, uh, with sure. this idea of doc democracy dollars, I've worked in politics. I've worked, you know, from the state house to the White House on political campaigns. And after college, I was chief of staff for a state representative. And so I hear a lot of calls for – 
for example, for let's say um, a way to try to end corruption or to keep money out of politics, people will say, well, we need term limits. And I think term limits is something that sounds good, but then in reality, what you're going to do is empower unelected bureaucrats, the legislative aides and the chiefs of staff who will stay and they will remain and there's no way of removing them. And, And it will, and it will empower the consulting class and the lobbyists. I'm against term limits for a couple of other reasons, too. Okay, so... But, the problem is not but, how long they serve. Oh, I'm sorry, I interrupted So you. that was Go just ahead. sort of a setup. Like, you know, whenever you were trying to deal with power, um, it's like putting yeah. your finger in a dam, right? It pops out somewhere else. Uh, something yeah. I was thinking about with this democracy bucks or democracy dollars idea, the first thing that popped out in my mind is as I'm a conservative, and I believe that yeah. there is massive bias in the mainstream media, and that the uninformed, uh, uh. unengaged voters will be easy to manipulate by the mainstream media, and those democracy dollars will be really just dollars that will be placed in the hands of our media elite that will get to direct where they go. Well, I, I, you know, I can't speak to that. You know that landscape better than I, but on the other hand, despite that media landscape, you know, President Trump won in 2016, and you, 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 you know, are pretty sure that he won the vote in 2020. I'm taking data, no position on that because I have to remain strictly nonpartisan. No, but, I understand. Uh, you know, it, 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 obviously, there's always a question there. Um, you know, I personally think that, I don't know, I'm not going to go talking about how to regulate, you know, policies toward the media because I'm, I'm not, well, I don't, I'm not an expert there. I'm no, I'm not saying I want to regulate the media. I'm just saying how would, you know, when you have yeah. a lot of, and, no offense to the uninformed. And there's a lot of people who vote that yeah. they don't have as much skin in the game as other people. Or yes. they they want to vote to take from others, right? They're not creators. Yes. They're not entrepreneurs. Um, yes. they're, they're, they're voting to use the power of the state for um, – Mitt Romney got in trouble for what did he say? That they wanted goodies or gifts. Remember that? He said uh, – Yeah, the 47% of preloaders, yeah. Yeah, so I mean I, – I can say it because I'm not running for office, and I'm not saying they're freeloaders. They just don't really understand a constitutional republic and a free society, and they do want goodies. Uh-huh. They do. They, you know, that's what special interests uh-huh. are, right? Whether they're big dollar special interests, which I would love to take away their goodies, like the Uni War Party and the military industrial complex. You know, they're saying yeah. that they're giving money to Ukraine. No money's going to Ukraine. It's going to people that make weapons in the United States, and they will be sending those weapons. Very to good Ukraine. point. Yeah. You know, so. Um, so I want to. I, I I don't like the people use the state, uh, the power, you know, to to vote for goodies for themselves. Whether it's uh, the pharmaceutical industry with their vaccines, or the military industry with their Stinger missiles, or whether it's you know um, the mainstream media trying to carve out a coalition for the left through people voting for you know like little 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 bags of goodies so that their cohorts can get their big bags of goodies. Well, I think that with it, one of the things, one of the great things that I think of democracy dollars, you know, a lot, an awful lot of Americans have tuned out politics entirely. And as you say, a lot of Americans may not be so well informed. And that's not, I don't even think that's a negative reflection on them, because frankly, why should they inform themselves when their vote counts for so little? I mean, it still pays to vote. Everyone should vote. But we, the people, have almost no influence on policy. They're rational. Their ignorance is rational. It's just not a a great use of their time. Exactly. It's rational. In a way, being a news junkie like me is is not a good use of my time, except that I'm working on this project. So, look, uh, but with democracy dollars, suddenly, 
every voter sees put in their own hands a chunk of political influence because if we can win this fight, by the time this fight is won, the American people will understand in American politics, money equals power. And your hundred democracy dollars, maybe even more than your vote, are essential to you having your say in how you are governed. And if we empower the people in this way, and also, and in this way, also cut all these special interests out of the equation and start cutting wasteful government spending and suddenly have all kinds of policy options that right now are off the table because they defend this or that group of donors, suddenly you have a more serious political conversation. You have in voters who feel empowered, engaged, who feel good about you know American politics again, who feel who feel good about America again, and I think you're going to see a much more engaged, savvy electorate than is possible under the current regime. Actually, frankly, when I think of how long the American people have been out in the cold, robbed of their voice in Washington, I find it impressive how many Americans still vote, how many Americans still make the effort that they make. And to me, that is eloquent testimony to one reason why I'm optimistic that I could win is that the American people really believe in government by the people, which makes sense because we were the ones who invented it. And it, it's and not only did we invent it, Perfected but across it. the generations, you know, we invented it and across the generations, hundreds of thousands of Americans, you know, have given their lives and wars fought for freedom and not just our freedom here but the freedom of, of all of humankind. I mean, you know, the central fact of American history, and it blows my mind that I, I never hear anyone saying this in any context, the central fact of American history is that the democratic form of government has been the American people's gift to, the to all of humanity. And it's a gift that we have given selflessly, idealistically, altruistically, heroically. It's a gift that we have paid for with hundreds of thousands of American lives, and I don't know how many trillions of dollars in today's inflation-adjusted money. And this is something truly heroic. This is, I mean, this for me is why, you know, you ask me, are the American people the greatest people on earth? Is the United States number one? I'll say, you bet we are, and here's why. And, I, you know, there's no doubt on that score, you know, on my, you know, on my mind. And yet, I feel maybe I'm listening to the wrong outlets, but I kind of feel, Jason, like hardly anyone talks about America anymore in our politics in the way that I'm talking about America. Yeah, maybe immigrants. You know, I'm not a big fan of David French, but he had a new article that came out this week where he, yeah. he, he I don't know if you saw it, where he said the Democrats are out of touch with their traditional base. And yeah. it was over. Well, I know they are. I didn't read the article, though. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think. It, I'm not a fan of David French. The guy's never seen a regime that he hasn't wanted to change. And um, okay, and he was a JAG lawyer. I was former infantry. And when I hear JAG lawyers brag about their service, I'm like, good for you. Um, but uh, where, where did you serve, Jason? If I may ask, I was 11 Bravo, but I have been all over the world. You know, to name a war. Okay, zone. anyway, I interrupted you. I'm no, sorry. no, no. Just but so, but David French in his his. Uh, but it was a great article. What he said is, listen. Um, Latinos love America. They think this is yes. the best place to live in the world. They are fearful of socialism because they have fled it. And they really right. believe That's in God. Right. And they really believe in God. And he, so what he was saying is, shush with yeah. the atheist socialist talk. You're scaring black and Latinos and you're chasing them to the Republican Party, which which is true. But, you know, I, have an, uh, I work with Afghans. 
young Afghan man who works for me, uh, Prince Wafa. He's been on he's been on the show. Prince is 30 years old, came to this country as a 23-year-old after serving uh, with the United States military as a translator from the age of 16, and, you know, drove Uber and worked at 7-Eleven, worked, yeah. you know, 60-hour weeks for, ten, you know, eight years, seven years. Now he owns yeah. a 7-Eleven, drives a Tesla, and has a nice home in the hills in San Diego. And he said something to me. I love that. I love hearing those stories. And he said to me, Jason, this is what he said to me. He says such the wisest things. He says, in America... Every door opens. If you walk up to a door, they will open it for you. You have to walk to the door. They're not going to carry you through the door. But if you walk up yeah. to the door, it opens. And then yesterday, you know, I, there was an article that came out. Uh, the State Department announced that they're going to take processing SIVs more seriously now. Well, it's been a year. I'm glad they're doing that. And uh, But he replied, he goes, no, the Democrats just like illegal immigration. They don't want legal immigration. They just want migrants in the underground economy to exploit. And uh, yeah. they're never going to process these SIVs. And that was it. So I, I, I think um, with our immigrants, and this is something I've seen a lot of articles. I, I, I subscribe to like 15 magazines. The Economist this week yeah. basically said to the Democrats, you are out of touch. Um, celebrate yeah. the greatness of America. But, you know, just Jason, like you if said. I jump in, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, you're, you're making a lot of very interesting points, but. Can we come back to what I really know about? Because yeah, really, no, I don't have but, a lot of knowledge in immigration. No, but your point being that uh, just that where is uh, where do people love America? Maybe it's in the immigrants. But you're right. We need to celebrate well, yeah. our institutions, celebrate representative government. This is a blessing and a yeah. privilege. And um, there's all this talk that we're a that, that we're our democracy's failing. Do you believe that? Well, actually, what I believe. Uh, Jason, is that our democracy was stolen from us by big money decades ago. Decades. I, I think it's really been a hollow facade for decades. And, I, you know, my view on this is, you know, I, you know, I think most people common in American politics don't see it as, as they don't see the picture quite as harsh, as bad as I do. But everyone else who comments American politics, although they know that big money is a problem, I feel that they don't know just how big it is. And I've been, you know, I've been chewing on this issue myself, as they say, on and off, mostly on for a dozen years. It was only like a few months ago that I had a eureka moment and a light bulb went up off my head. And I began to see that, you know, began to understand just how monstrously huge the money problem is and also to understand, to see why it was invisible and why no one else has seen it. And let me let me say a little bit about that, because I think you'll find this interesting. You know, when people talk about money in politics, they talk almost entirely about transparently obvious examples of influence peddling. You know, this industry, well, you just you just talk, for example, about defense contractors uh, making out like bandits on the war in Afghanistan because those defense contractors throw money at politicians and then they hire lobbyists who go to the politicians and call in favors, like weapon systems that sometimes the military doesn't even want. And that's just one. And that, 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 all that obvious influence peddling is absolutely important, but it's only the tip of the iceberg. And the problem is not just that people don't see the mass of the iceberg, it's that no one knows the mass of the iceberg is there. And the mass of the iceberg is, is all the ideas and candidates that never make it into the political conversation 
all the questions that don't get asked, any questions, any ideas and candidates that are not attractive or even interesting to high dollar donors never come into the conversation. Uh, you know, because look, you, you know, the political scientists like to call it this, the invisible primary, the year before the actual election year, anyone who wants to get a campaign off the ground, they're competing with each other, you know, for the favor of the donors, trying to raise enough money. If you don't raise money up to a certain bar, the media decides you're not viable, the public never hears your name, and your campaign doesn't happen. So, you know, more and more, and the thing is that as elections have grown more and more expensive by leaps and bounds since the late 1970s, this mass of, ice, of the iceberg of unasked questions of ideas and candidates that you never hear about and never even think about has grown bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, another way that I can express it is it's, it's an invisible hole in the entire political conversation, in our imaginations, in the way we think about policy. It began in the late 1970s, not so big, and it has grown slowly but relentlessly, kind of like an invisible tumor. It won't show up in an MRI, but now this hole in our conversation of all, you know, whatever options there may be, ideas there may be that are unappealing to donors, it takes up so much space, there's hardly room left for any other policy options. And both parties, frankly, I think have run out of ideas. I mean, now the, the messaging of both parties is not a positive message of hope. And here's our plan to make America stronger. I mean, in the 2020 federal election, the top line message of both major parties was identical. If the other guys win, the world will come to an end. And, you know, since then, and I, this is one reason why I think indirectly the money and the desperate need to raise all this money helps fuel the anger between Americans of the opposing parties. I mean, I'm not denying that Americans do not have important differences of opinion about important policy issues. They do. But these, this, this partisanship, this partisan polarization has taken on, it, it's escalated, it's gone off the charts, it's gotten out of hand. And, and, and we have now a situation where I feel that a lot of our politicians are actually encouraging Americans to fear and hate other Americans because they vote for the other party. And I think that's horrible. And I think it's horrible. And I think that money is the number one reason why it's happening. So look, I just hit you over the head with a, <laughs> a big block of new ideas. And let me step back and ask you, am I making sense? Well, I definitely agree with you that we want everyone's interests to be represented. We want especially um, those minority and minority, minority, I don't mean just ethnicity or race. I mean, you know, people with minority opinions or interests yeah. that might be at odds with the majority in the population. I want their interests yeah. to be heard. I just, I don't know if I'm on board with the democracy dollars. Maybe if we did something okay. like a 401k where we got a dollar for dollar match, because I think it is, it is important that people have skin in the game. And, yeah. uh, you know, I started my involvement in politics as a 17-year-old high school dropout, single father. Yeah. And was able to climb my way in 10 years from working at state races to, you know, working on presidential campaigns. Um, and so something that I'm in awe of about our country is just how someone like me who, you know, could go from uh, 
a high school dropout infantryman teen parent yeah. to in 10 years going to meetings at the Oval Office, that's unique about our country, right? I mean, that's something that's very unique. Yeah. And so I do think that despite the power and influence of big money, um, yeah. for those who are willing to um, put their shoulder to it, their voice can be heard. My, when I graduated college, I wrote my goal was to see Roe versus Wade overturned, and I ordered my life to doing that for 30 years uh-huh. with uh-huh. a lot of other folks. And that was a real David and Goliath story. And yes. yet, and yet, it, yet it happened. But I, I agree with you that we have to find a way to the the pernicious, you know, this um, that big money, especially the way I see it, like in Ukraine right now, where the weapon systems aren't even making it to the battlefield, but Where's all this, where are these billions of dollars going or the tens of billions of dollars of weapons that were left to the Taliban uh, during our, our botched withdrawal? These things are, they're very important. Can you give us an example of, of like a real clean, clear cut example of how big money in politics has undermined the common good for all Americans? Yeah, I think the, I think the, the number one issue on my list is healthcare. Okay. And health, it's crazy. We've got this this monstrous, you know, hyper complicated, you know, so called healthcare system. It eats up. It depends on which year you look at. But let's, you know, if, like pre pandemic, the numbers are different, obviously. But like, for example, in in most other wealthy societies, healthcare takes up about between ten and twelve percent of GDP. And in America, in in years, it, it eats up you know, 17, 18% of our GDP. And that, that extra, you know, 6%, 5, 6% of our GDP is a tax on the economy. It's a tax on every American. It's a tax on every American's paycheck. Where does this excess, excessive expense come from? Now, I'm not a healthcare policy expert and I don't have a plan to fix it. But first off, in every other country on earth, drug, you know, uh, Drug prices are regulated. Americans pay twice as much, at least twice as much, prescription medications as anyone else. And even if you don't want to regulate drug prices, it currently by law, the Medicare system is forbidden to negotiate a bulk discount from big pharma. I mean, normally in the free market, you buy in bulk, you get a discount. But the Medicare system is not allowed to do that, so the Medicare system plays full sticker price. What, frankly, whatever these, these, these drug companies feel like charging. So there's one, what's one place uh, where unfairness comes in, where too much money is being spent, and you have, you have Americans, because where their insurance doesn't call, cover the whole price of their drugs, you know, are being bankrupted by drugs. Then you have the insurance companies who now are micromanaging doctors because I guess they can, and, and looking, they have people working overtime, looking for excuses to deny payment, to deny coverage, because to, to increase their profit margin. And they're making the, the practice of medicine a miserable experience. My best friend runs a medical practice in Northern New Jersey, so I, I hear this firsthand. Um, exactly how to fix that, I don't know. Um, in Germany, um, you have health insurance supplied by, I think it's a, there's like 160 of them, they're basically consumer cooperatives, or you could call them nonprofit health insurance companies. I'm not, I mean, that might, it's worth at least talking about as a model. Anyway, we can't, look, we can't do anything that pharma doesn't want. We can't do anything the insurance companies don't want. 
because both of those industries are gigantic donors to politicians and they hire armies of lobbyists and no congressman is going to cross them. Final interest group, you know, the malpractice attorneys bar. Um, you know, we need, of course, a system for weeding out negligent or incompetent doctors. And we need a system for compensating people who've been harmed by, you know, negligent, you know, medical mistakes, especially if the harm they've suffered is disabling. But, you know, we do it in the most expensive way possible and in the most haphazard, unfair, inconsistent way possible. We do it through the courts in lawsuits. And you've got the cost of malpractice insurance, you know, raising the cost of health care. And then you also have the cost of what we call defensive medicine, that is doctors ordering all kinds of unnecessary tests and procedures to protect themselves against a malpractice lawsuit if someone second guesses them. And that, I think the cost of defensive medicine has been estimated, one, one estimate I saw was $55 billion a year, so you're talking about a half a trillion over a 10-year period. It's not gigantic, but it's not chicken feet either. So that, I guess, is probably the best example I can think of. And, and the other example that's gigantic, but it's, it's really a 500 examples rather than one example, is wasteful government spending. Where does wasteful government spending come from? It comes from lobbyists. And lobbyists have the political muscle they need to extract goodies from Congress, whether it's a government contract or a tax loophole or, a, or an outright subsidy. Uh, I mean, one of, for example, I mean, this is unbelievable. You know, our government every year pays $20 billion of our money in subsidies to, to fossil fuel companies that are already highly profitable. I mean, we are increasing the profits of ExxonMobil with taxpayers' money. And why does that make any sense? Of course it doesn't. But the lobbyists have this muscle. Congressmen are at their mercy because the lobbyist clients spend money to help, you know, politicians. The lobbyists will a lobbyist will stage fundraisers for a member of Congress that they'd like to influence. And lobbyists are even allowed to, you know, donate money out of their own high salaries directly to, to senators' representatives that they'd like to influence. I mean, it's amazing that that's legal, but it is. Now, if we, and, and so what I say is, one of the objections, by the way, and, and this is great that we brought this up now, um, one of the most common objections, and it's a very reasonable one, to the democracy dollar system, people ask me, well, where does this money come from, this $100 per voter? Well, it comes from the federal budget. It's taxpayer dollars. And, and people say, wait a minute. Another, you're going to add another eight eight billion a year because it would average out to eight billion a year over over two, over two cycles in four years. You want to add another eight billion when we're already running a deficit of, of a trillion a year that we can't afford to be running. But my answer is, you know, if 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 our members of Congress are getting the campaign cash they need from us from the voters, then they can instead of from the the lobbyists and the special interest that the lobbyists have hired, you know, our members of Congress can start telling these lobbyists to take a hike. And then we can have a serious conversation about, well, you know, do we really need to spend this? You know, or is this tax loophole? Really, this tax loophole is great for this Fortune 500 company, but it sticks small business, you know, paying, a paying the subsidizing, you know, the tax bill of big business, which in fact is what's happening. And I think, I mean, there's this, there's this great nonprofit 
nonpartisan organization, watchdog organization that leans, leans moderate Republican, I would say, called Citizens Against Government Waste. It came out of Ronald Reagan's Race Commission to study government waste in, I think, the second, uh, in 1982. And ever since, they, they go over every federal budget with a fine tooth comb uh, and they issue a report with the catchy name Prime Cuts. And the, the report they issued for the 2020 budget, I, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking from memory now. I don't have these figures in front of me, but I remember them saying that they identified 593 federal programs that they think we should trim or eliminate entirely for what they projected was a savings of $4 trillion over a five-year period. That is $800 billion of waste every year. Uh, are all these cuts a good idea? Probably not. Are they all politically feasible? Almost certainly not. But, you know, if we could cut these lobbyists and their, and their donors, these campaign donors, out of the loop, uh, I don't know how much money we would save if we implement democracy dollars, but it's going to be an awful lot more than $8 billion a year. So my answer to the, the taxpayer dollars, you know, criticism, which is a very reasonable criticism, is this reform would pay for itself dozens of times over in, in cutting wasteful government spending. Can, let, me, and let, me throw, let me throw a curveball at you. Is it possible that this would just yeah. create new powerful special interests with these democracy dollars as, as groups of Americans, um, you know, where these, that, that it wouldn't stop special interests, but it would lead. I mean, aren't some of the most powerful special interests, big dollar special interests like labor unions, teachers unions, things like this, mate, and their money comes from Well, dues. There, there you've got a point. When you, when you have a block, a sizable block of Americans, who, who may be, you know, who may be susceptible to kind of behaving politically in the same way for the same reasons. I suppose that's possible, but it's still so much better than what we got now. And I'd still rather have that money come from union members to their personal choice and not come from the treasury of the union, which is getting this money from union dues and is spending this money on politicians, whether their members like it or not. Um, I think, and you know, the one thing, great thing about this system, I think it's impossible to rig and it's almost impossible for the government to mess it up for us. I mean, basically all the government has to do is establish, it has to establish, uh, a very big and important sort of national website where all politicians are able to put up like a pitch for themselves and on which every registered voter, uh, establishes their own democracy dollars account into which the government gives, deposits their democracy dollars. But once that is done, once that initial administrative step is taken, basically every election, the democracy dollars money is put in the hands of 200 million registered voters. You know, it's not, it's not a pile of cash that bureaucrats in Washington get to dole out as they see fit. It's based on the independent decisions of 200 million Americans. And I don't see really, can you really rig that? I, I don't, I don't see it, Jason. That doesn't really scare me. I don't, I don't see that as a likely scenario. I and not say. that you can rig it. I mean, I don't even think most special interests are rigging anything. They're just, I do. They're just <laughs> amplifying yeah. one perspective. Like, let me give you an example. Let's, let's take agriculture. Um, yes. My wife, I always joke that every time my wife watches a Netflix documentary, my food bill goes up 10% because, you know, it starts out, it's got to be, 
you know, uh, chemical-free, hormone-free, and now I can only eat a chicken if it went to a Montessori school. You know, I can't. <laughs> that is so stupid. You know, I am going to write that down, and I'm going to tell all my friends, that's one of the funniest things I've heard in at least two months. <laughs> <laughs> I can only eat. Is, yeah. no, thank you so much for that, Jason. That was brilliant. You're a funny guy. <laughs> well, no, it's just, so then my one of my good friends, uh, and a fan of the show, and a fan of the show, a good friend and a fan of the show, who writes me yeah. really yeah. aggressive yeah. show notes, um, he is a lobbyist for big agriculture. And so to listen to him and my wife argue about ag, and he'll say, listen, our goal is to feed as many people with as little bit of land and as little bit of water as possible. This is our job. Yeah. And then he'll start citing, yeah. you know, how hunger in the world has been alleviated. I remember when I was a kid, they would have little yeah. videos. Little Jason is starving in Appalachia. And, you know, we weren't even sending yeah. money to Africa. We were still sending money to, like, parts of America to feed kids. Um, so a lot of these big... You know, when we don't like them, uh, we, you know, these uh, these big special interests. But but I think aren't most of them run by professionals who believe I mean, they've maybe deluded themselves or they have narrow vision, but they really believe that they are working for the common good and they are the biggest stakeholders in what it is they're talking about. So won't they I still kind of point, be Jason. they'll still sort of be surfing whatever waves are created. Just a thought. I, I think that, well, I think that what I like about what you're saying is that, I do, as again, as I say, we're not saying that any of these donors are bad people. I mean, look, if you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and you and your executives don't make a lot of money available to help politicians and you don't hire an army of lobbyists, you are forfeiting an advantage to your competitors. You're neglecting your fiduciary duty to your employees and your shareholders. You're not doing your job, okay? Um, I also agree, look, in any political system, um, a bit as a democratic political system, you know, even when, you know, no matter how much, how, how well the system represents the will of the people, people, the people who run these interest groups, the people, the executives of these corporations, America's billionaires, these people are always going to have vastly more influence than your average citizen and because they've earned it because they earn their they, they earn their money because they're talented and smart and creative and have a fantastic work ethic and they've created jobs for Americans and 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 you have to listen to them because they you know they continue to supply jobs for Americans and they absolutely should have the ear of politicians in Washington those people will always have far more influence than the average voter in any political system, but they shouldn't be the only people who get to speak. And right now that's the situation right now. The American people don't get to speak at all. Really? They don't, we don't get to speak and we need to. So, I mean, you're going in the right direction and we're, we're in partial agreement, but, uh, you know, uh, if I may, I would like to raise, the, the, the other really big objection. Well, can I push back on that real quick? So every American okay, will get, how, how much money will every American get to give to a campaign? $100 in a presidential year, $50 in the, off, in the, mid -year, in the midterms. Okay, so I, um, isn't a little infantilizing to Americans to say they don't get to speak because, I mean, like I said, I was a teen parent and I worked very hard the, the night shift at Home Depot and waiting tables 
during the day while I was putting myself through school. But I remember sending Ron Paul money for his presidential yeah. campaign. My, my, my first when I was 18, yeah. and I sent him like 200 bucks. Okay. But, but Jason, can I jump in? Listen, you can't expect every American to be you. You right. are an exceptional individual, okay? You're a self-made man, and now you've got like a top 100 podcast. And, you know, it's not fair to expect the bulk of the American people to be as strong as you, to make to have made as much money as you, to be as committed as you. It's just not realistic. And so I know where you're coming from. I mean, people like you who are self-made, you know, are really strongly opposed, you know, to government programs that, you know, maybe giving money to people who are not working as hard as they, I totally get that. Well, you know, but I think and, and Dan, I don't mean to be antagonistic. And I don't mean to be antagonistic. I just, I'll tell you why no, I'm opposed. No, I didn't say you're antagonistic, not well, at all. Well, no. and, I, and I don't mean to be antagonistic. I'm just questions. And it's not like, no, you know, my, not. No. when I was coming up, I saw government programs, and I'm serious, yeah. as obstacles to my future growth. I remember yeah. as, um, I was 20 years old, had two kids. And my, my, my wife and I, we were very hungry. We were really poor. We were living off Simon noodles and spaghetti. And one day yeah. I came home and the refrigerator was filled with food. And it was unbelievable. Like there was steak and there was milk and there was this and that. And I had asked her where she got the money for the, all of this food. And she said, well, her mother sent us money. I said, well, tell her thank you. That's very nice of her. And then yeah. uh, a couple weeks later... The refrigerator was filled with food again. And I said, where did you get all the money for this food? She said, well, my, my mom sent me money again. I said, well, tell your mother, thank you. Um, but, you know, we're okay. We're not malnourished, you know. We, yeah, yeah. we go to Blockbuster and rent VHS movies here and there. We, we, we don't, you know, we have cable. Um, yeah. So when we have to cut cable and um, never go out to eat and uh, – then if we're still struggling, we can ask for money. Then I come home a couple weeks later, yeah. and the refrigerator is filled with food. Was, was, was this food stamp? And then I go into her purse, and I look, and there are food stamps. And I take a garbage bag, and I take all the food, and I throw it away. And she's crying. Well, Jason, you're a, you're a better and stronger man than most of us. Well, it. Dan, let me you tell know? you and why, God though. It's not that I'm better or stronger. Yeah. It's just as I was throwing this away... She's crying and I'm crying and she's like, we need this food. And I, she's like, what does it hurt? And I said, you know, I'm working 80 hours a week sleeping in my car. When I go from the night shift to the community college, I said, yeah. I need it to sting. I cannot have this. I will. I cannot, I cannot have a refrigerator filled with food and work as hard as I'm working. I cannot. This is very important. And so that, that's just my only concern is sometimes when we give people training wheels who don't need them, uh, yeah. we, we, we limit them from becoming who they are. And, and maybe these democracy bucks are the way to go or maybe a matching thing. And I really want people to be engaged and I really want them to pay attention because I do think yeah. that most Americans were on the same page. Like I'm for border security and mandatory verification system and, and getting yeah. the dreamers uh, uh, normalized in home where they belong, the way they belong here. Yeah. But people who think they would radically disagree with me, we both want what's best for migrants and immigrants, but we're coming, but we have different sets of information. And we I, want what's best for America. Yeah. yeah, and they want what's best for America. I, and, and I think, if, as we all do, we think if people had all the information, they'd think just like me, you know? But 
but I do want people yeah. to be more engaged. Um, but I, I just, I'm always looking at, I guess my argument would but, be if we just. Yeah, but then my argument is, Jason, is that democracy dollars gives them a great reason to be engaged because it empowers them again. Right now, they're not engaged because they're powerless. And the only way to give them power back is to give them money to donate because in American politics, money equals power. The candidates, are they need this money desperately. They're going to get it from someone. As long as they get it from George Soros or Charles Koch, they're not serving us. If they get it from us, then they start serving us, serving us again like they should. And when they start serving us, then they start talking serious ideas with us instead of just manipulating us with empty slogans. And then the voters, believe me, the voters will be plenty engaged and plenty well-informed when that better day comes. Uh, of that, I have no doubt. You know, something really you just, do. I mean, I'm, it's interesting yeah, you brought those two guys up and, and they're both from different perspectives. They're both thoughtful, thought yeah, to come I'd from different, so. <laughs> but you yeah. know, they're both ideologues. And what's strange in America today is that big money is driven by extreme ideology. And traditionally one would think, and I would hope as a conservative, that big money would want to preserve order, peace, growth. But it's strange, isn't it, that the big money in American politics, Paul Singer, Soros, well, Koch, is, they're ideologues. Some of them are, but I think the great majority are people like, you know, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. I think these are actually pretty level-headed CEOs. And, you know, but even but one of the reasons why I think we can win is that even these donors are no longer getting what they need from the political system because – the country is falling apart. We've got all these problems. Healthcare is just one infrastructure. We need better schools for our children that are going unaddressed because of interest group gridlock, because, because the need to give to, to return favors to donors has hogtied every member of, Cong of Congress. It hogties the president. It's hogtied the whole country. And, you know, what do, what do, what does the business community most need in any country from the political system? Yes, they very much want lower taxes and less regulation, but what they have to have is stability and predictability, and that is now out the window in our country. Yeah, I agree with you there. And it's out the window. Pardon? I agree with you there. Yeah, stability and predictability is out, is out the window, and it's something uh, – uh, it's frightening. It's scary. It's scary, especially – can and we it's use out this? the window because – go ahead. I want to use this because we got 10 minutes left, and um, – I want to transition. I think this is a perfect transition because okay, um, okay. your first book really caught my. I actually ordered it when I when I saw your statement. Oh, uh, you know, because I, you know, Jason, my plan was to send you a signed copy. I'll take after a signed interview to thank you for bringing me on your show. But since you've ordered it, um, I then still I want a signed I, copy. But what I can do is hand. All right, then you then you're getting a signed copy, and then I will give my. I am a bibliomaniac with the world's best political philosophy and theology library, where it will go. And above my head is the complete works of Eric Vogelin. You're a German scholar, and yes. um, I think you and I have a lot in common. I'm working on a book right now called Socrates and Auschwitz on the great political thinkers that came out of the Holocaust. Oh, we've we've got to talk. Leo Strauss, I mean, we, Eric you know, Vogelin, Hannah show, Arendt. We need to talk on the phone sometime. Yeah, yeah. Or I'll just always record it so we can sell pillows. But. Um, <laughs> you know, Eric Vogelin, Leo Strauss, uh, Hannah Arendt, my favorite yeah. thinkers came out of the Hulk. So um, as we're talking about the lack of, uh, how did you word it? The stability or predictability. 
lack of stability and predictability the because st- the people the people no longer trust the government at all. The government is no longer legitimate in the eyes of the American people because in America, a government is legitimate only if it's governed by the people and the people fully realize that they have no influence, that they're disempowered, that they're cut out of the action. And that's why anything can happen in the years ahead. It's very dangerous. So anyway. And that's why your next book, yeah, I think it's a perfect transition from your Get Money Out of Politics to your, uh, which is your upcoming book, to your last book, um, How Could This Happen? Explaining the Holocaust. And um, I read some, some clips of it. I watched an interview you did on your book. And you talked about the Weimar Republic and how fragile it was because Germany yeah, didn't have yeah. deep-rooted democracy. Um, yeah. Are you worried that the lack of predictability and stability in the United States, um, we could lose our representative government and be swept away by dangerous enthusiasms like we've seen happen in Europe relentlessly over the past 200 years? Well, I, I absolutely, I, frankly, as I said earlier, I feel that we have already lost government by the people, but it also can get worse. I mean, we may even no longer have free elections at some point. I don't see us becoming a dictatorship because I don't think anyone in law enforcement is going to be willing to work in a Gestapo. Um, I don't see, I, I can't imagine that genocide would be in our future for all kinds of reasons. Um, but, you know, having a, a complete end to government by the people in the land of its birth is pretty damn tragic enough. Um, let me, I just, I just say why I don't see, although I, ha- I have a lot of fear for our country, I don't fear genocide because what made the more than anything else what made the holocaust possible was that in that time and place the ruling class of one of our most advanced societies decided not just decided but proudly affirmed that an individual human life has no intrinsic value whatsoever and that therefore you know and because they didn't just murder you know try to murder every person of jewish ancestry in europe they murdered like seven million other gentiles soviet pow's uh, Polish Christians, so on and so forth, sometimes just because it was convenient for them to do so, because it was sort of like, why not? Why not kill them? They're just people. And there are, I think there are three historical factors that made that possible that, that will not reoccur. One is, you know, those men who who, mur- who did these murders, a lot of them had fought in World War One. In World War One, 10 million men killed in combat, including 2 million Germans, which would be the equivalent of 10 million Americans. They scale it up to our population. Life was a lot cheaper back then. The bar for violence was far lower. A second point is back then, the dominant way people thought about the human race was social Darwinist racism. It was actually believed that every nationality had evolved further from the apes in a different way and and to a different distance. And that opened the door to the idea that some class, some races, ethnicities, nations are more valuable than others and to the idea that some branches of humanity are entirely worthless. Today, there's still no shortage of racial prejudice in our country and every country, but even the almost hardened white supremacist in America doesn't think that black people are, are a separate species. But back then, the men who did those murders thought the Jews were a separate species. And the final factor, well, that is really actually, well, I think I'll, I'll take a stab at explaining it, but it's, it's kind of complicated, is just that, Germany is the only political system in history that drew its its legitimacy overwhelmingly from a belief in the magical qualities, the superhuman, even supernatural qualities of its leader. People 
didn't just obey they deified him. People, and, and for the German people and also for anyone working in the German government, especially in the SS, who organized and carried out most of the killings, Hitler stood outside and above history. He was not subject to any moral or legal sanction. He was not restrained by any moral or legal principle. If Adolf Hitler wanted it, it was automatically moral and legal. That is a political system that has existed only once in history. It took a remarkable confluence of circumstances to make that unique political system possible, and I don't see it ever happening again. In the West. So for all these re- what? Anywhere in the West. Even, even I, I think even in any country, I think it was such a fluke to have this, you know, DFI leader like Hitler. Hitler having a leader who really is regarded seen as a god, quite literally. Uh, I think I don't see how that could ever happen again. I mean, it just it was just so such an unlikely combination of circumstances. Something you said in your interview that that said that, you know, it was so unlikely, so unbelievable, but it happened. So clearly it was possible, but it seemed. Yeah. And for me, as someone is a conservative Catholic, I wrote a book called the race to save our century and how do we prevent a repeat of the 20th century and the 21st. And the first principle I put in the book is we have to aggressively advocate a vision of the human person that's related to the truth, which is, we have yeah. an inviolable dignity and beauty and worth. But Germany was a traditional society, right? I mean, these were Christians that had a Christian Absolutely. anthropology. Well, I mean, well, how many I of them were influenced? Among the educated, how, how many the educated them, German elite and, uh, was actually, I think, uh, they were kind of, they were agnostics at best, most of those guys. But and was the it Nazis the elite? were ferociously anti-Christian. Yeah, I knew that. Like, And I know like the Thule, the Thule Society which influenced the German elite. So was this just yeah. a, like a, an enthusiasm that just tripped the, the people up? Because, so was Hitler um, a projection of the ideology of Germany, the ideology of the elite? No, no. It was just, it was a projection. It was a projection on the part of a, of a, of a truly desperate people of all their hopes. The only thing they had left in their eyes at, at the depth of the Great Depression in 1933 the only possible source of hope they could find is that someone of superhuman abilities could ride in on a white horse and save them. And the thing is, Hitler came in and then almost entirely due to dumb luck, rather than to any savvy, any wise decisions on his part, he had a, a, a stunning run of successes that didn't end until 1941 when the German armies failed to take Moscow in December of that year. And everyone's success further enhanced and built up the myth of his superhuman or even supernatural abilities. And that also was part of the unrepeatable circumstances that made me think, we're not going to see this again. So, you know, the final takeaway I want to say about the Holocaust is, you know, yes, it is, it's part of our human potential and it is terrifying. But on the other hand, it took, I think, an almost impossible perfect storm of, you know, at least a dozen factors, you know, to make this possible in such an advanced society. And I don't think it's a sound reason for being pessimistic about the future of humanity. I myself am very optimistic about the long-term future of human civilization. I see a wonderful future for us. Well, that's, that's a hopeful, yeah, it's just, you know, uh, Hannah Arendt was asked once, uh, a German had said to her, and she was German, she saw herself as German, German Jew. Yes, yes. 
And it said to her after the war, I'm ashamed to being for being German. And Hannah said, well, that's the Holocaust. Makes, she said, the Holocaust makes me ashamed of being German. And Hannah said, well, it should make you ashamed of being human. And I thought that was such... Yeah, Red is so brilliant, and she's, she's right. Not, yeah, she's beautiful, isn't because she? Because the Holocaust is not a uniquely German phenomenon. It's a human phenomenon. And every yeah. last one of us is capable of this cruelty if you teach us the wrong ideas and put us in the wrong circumstances. So that's the lesson. We, we, to guard our own mind and spirit is not to be captured by ideologies that make us cruel. We can't take the value we place in human life for granted. Yes. We just can't take it for granted because it, we have it has been taken away. Um, and wow. that's that's this the point so of this. Sh- and you know, Dan, that's the the purpose of the show. I I make movies, I write, but I just wanted one more outlet that I could, whenever I wanted, say what I want. Um, because I, I do believe that the the, I, the the we have forgotten how beautiful and dignified the human person is, and with yeah. the rise of transhumanism and with Chinese war against the Uyghur and the harvesting of organs that there's a lot of challenges barreling down. There's a lot of challenges coming our way. And, um, yes, I agree with you. Um, before I guess, I guess, are we finished recording or I have one question. I have one question. And, um, sure. How do we find your new book? Okay, so the book is is not even in contract yet. It's not oh, okay. out. I mean, I'm working. I mean, I've been working on it. You know, at this part, that's what I've been researching and writing. Got for you. How so? How big money years. stole your vote is not out yet, but we can have you back on. But, but what's important right now is not my book. What's important is the website. Okay. Of my political organization, which is nonpartisan and promotes democracy dollars, and the name of my organization is Save Democracy in America. And the website URL is unfortunately long, so I'll repeat it, savedemocracyinamerica.org. Again, savedemocracyinamerica, one word, .org. And there you will find some content, a couple of videos, uh, and opportunities, some ideas about how you can help if you agree with what we're doing. And I'd love it if you'd go to our website. Well, I am uh, at your website right now as you were talking, and I just gave you my email address. (laughs) So there we go. How to okay. save how to, well, sa- you, how to save democracy in America. You Jason Jones just signed up for that. There you have it. Oh, that is so great. Okay. Uh, uh, but but I I'm I'm still unclear as to how to use the dashboard. So maybe when we start recording, if you could tell me your email address and also your surface mail address. Yes, sir. And uh well with that I'll say goodbye and then I'm gonna sell some pillows. Okay. Do you have what's your favorite do you have do you have Mike Lindell's my pillow yet, Dan? Uh, no, I don't actually. I don't even know who makes my pillows. The pillows I have. I, I, I bet you China. So I, I want everyone. Yeah, to de- I bet you're right. We need to decouple our families' economies from China, and that's why I'm proud to say that Mike Lindell is a sponsor of the show. So let me wrap the show up, and then hold on, and we'll talk as soon as I'm done. That's terrific. That's terrific. I'm standing by. I'll uh-huh. be here on the line. All right, hold on. All right, guys. Um, that was my interview with Dr. Dan McMillan. Yeah, I get money out of politics, save democracy in America.org. I'm going to have the website and the show notes. I just ordered his first book. I'm really looking forward to reading that. Uh, I don't know how I missed it when it came out in 2014. I'll put that link in the show notes as well. This episode is being brought to you by the best pillow in the world. As Destiny Della Rosa called it yesterday, a magic pillow. Go to mypillow.com, use the code Jones, get deep discounts on all of Mike's products uh, right now. 
The Giza Dream sheets are what you want for this hot summer. You need the pillow. You already got the pillow. I know you have the pillow, but the slippers, they've never been cheaper. And we've got runaway inflation, but you can get the Mike's slippers uh, for the best price ever. Everything is made in America. Go to MyPillow.com. Use the code Jones. This episode is also being brought to you by Epoch Times. Go to IReadEpoch.com. And the battle for your family and the battle for freedom and the battle against the CCP. Epoch Times is the first place you need to go every day. So go to IReadEpoch.com. The code is Jason Jones. So let's decouple our family's economies from China, right? I'm decoupling my, my family and my wife's Chinese. We're decoupling from China. And that's why my pillows are Mike's pillows. I read Epoch Times. And as always, our main sponsor, the Vulnerable People Project, standing in solidarity with the most vulnerable people in the world when it's most challenging. Do you know what we did today at VPP, just so you know? We, some Ukrainian women who presented themselves at the border, as they were told, were promptly arrested and thrown into jail for several months, contacted VPP. We got them out today. We're also evacuating a young woman from Afghanistan. As we speak, we're continuing to support our SIVs and allies in Pakistan and Afghanistan in our safe houses. Uh, and we have a team that just arrived in Ukraine. If you want to stand with us as we stand with the vulnerable, go to thegreatcampaign.org, give your best one-time gift, and become a monthly donor. Until tomorrow, it's been Jason Jones with Dr. Dan McMillan on The Jason Jones Show. This has been The Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Oh,